as we saw in the video we just watched, the reason that there is such wise teaching and sound wisdom in the book of Proverbs is that this is indeed the word of the Lord. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender and an only child of my mother, he taught me and said, Lay hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or swerve from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Esteem her and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honour you. She will set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of splendour. Listen, my son, accept what I say and the years of your life will be many. I guide you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way, for they cannot sleep until they do evil. They're robbed of slumber till they make someone fall. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't know what makes them stumble. My son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet and take only the ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. Thanks, Peter. Good morning, Southside. It's great to see you. Let's pray before we dive into God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for life and breath this morning. Thank you that your instruction uh, is about our existence, that you give us uh, wisdom for living. Thank you that you give us meaning and purpose in Jesus. Lord, we would pray that you would apply to our hearts what you say in your word, that we would be people who follow the shepherd all the more fervently. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We, of course, have been travelling through the book of Proverbs, and this week uh, I thought, since Proverbs talks so much about life, I will do a mental stock take of all of the messages and advice that I've been given about life over my vast years. Uh, so I'll, I'll list them off. My apologies if you're not in my generation and you don't get some of these, some of these but see how you go. <clears throat> my earliest... Uh, Earliest memories of an ad campaign were for the Life Be In It ad campaign. So I was told as a child that I needed to eat less salt, eat less fat, eat less sugar and be active. Life be in it. Don't be like Norm sitting on the lounge. Uh, I was told by Harry Morant at the end of Breaker Morant, <clears throat> live every day as if it was going to be your last. For one day you're sure to be right, which I guess is kind of living life to the full. Uh, I was told by John Cougar Mellencamp, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. I guess it's, I think he's just saying life's kind of boring most of the time. Uh, I was told about the random nature of life by our good friend Forrest Gump. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. I was told by Reebok, life is short, play hard. I was told by Ewan McGregor in train spotting, choose life instead of heroin. I was told by Tom Cochran and the Cars soundtrack, life is a highway, which... I still don't get that metaphor. I don't even know what they're talking about there. Uh, I read recently, C.S. Lewis wrote, uh, reality looked at steadily is unbearable. Uh, is, is kind of a dark thing to say, is after his wife died. There is, of course, this gem. This is my favourite. When we die, our bodies become, grass, become the grass, the antelopes eat the grass, and we, in turn, eat the antelopes, which is the circle of life, which fits much better on the lips of a lion rather than a person. But... It's, uh, that's that one. Uh, and of course, in recent years, I've been told you only live once. And so I need to do more reckless, stupid things and probably upload them to YouTube because YOLO. I only get one chance at this, so I might as well do it. And so all of these are thoughts on life. They're all grasping at, at what life means, how, how we're to make the most of life, how we're to live well in this world. And we come across philosophers, whether it is Forrest Gump or Mufasa, who tell us what life is, and kind of we've all come to a conclusion of what life's all about. You remember in the previous passages throughout Proverbs, uh, this picture is used of a dad sitting down with his son, telling him what life is about, sitting around a kitchen table, having a heart-to-heart. -to -heart. Today's passage, it's actually made up of three of those talks, but they all fit together because they all talk about what life is about. More to the point, it's, they talk about what makes a good life. What's a successful life? What's living well in the days that we're given on earth? It's kind of, it's God's philosophy on what life is. And so we'll look at these three talks. First, it'll be having a lust for life. Second, having a trust-shaped life. And third, having a, a shepherded life. And so to begin with, the dad sits down with his son. He calls him close and like a good dad, wants his best for his son. He wants to make sure that he grabs hold of this good direction. And so he's going to call in some reinforcements to do that. Verse 1 and 2, they're the similar encouragement to listen, pay attention, son. But in verse 3, the dad calls in the big guns. Verse 3, this is what it says. For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. And he taught me, he said to me, take hold of my words with all your heart, keep my commands and you'll live. And so the dad, he, he goes back to his childhood and actually uses the words of his dad to teach his son. So it's not only the dad speaking, but we're getting the, the grandpa in here as well, speaking through the dad. And now as the son, we might be tempted to think, oh, here we go again with another story from your childhood dad. What he's actually doing, though, is showing that this wisdom is, is solid. 
This, this wisdom's time-tested. There's a, a history behind it. You know, we might not like to give much weight to tradition, but in this case, the dad's saying, I didn't just make this stuff up. It's been tested by the rough and tumble of life. That there is that ancient pattern, the needle and thread, as we saw in the thing. There's wisdom, there's hokmah, and it's accessible to all people, and they can be used to build a life that works. And so the grandpa goes on to speak about the approach that you're to have to this wisdom and this pattern, and he pulls no punches about it. His guidance is to go after this full steam ahead. Verse 5 and 7, he says, Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or swerve from, from them. Wisdom is supreme, verse 7. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it cost you all you have, get understanding. <clears throat> Four times he speaks of getting wisdom. And the word is used kind of to buy or acquire or just get it. It's kind of like saying, the grandpa saying, I don't care how you get this, just get it. Beg, borrow, steal. Make sure the thing left in your pocket when you've spent everything else is wisdom. And so this wisdom is from God. It's knowing God's pattern for living that we had to chase after. And so in this way, the grandpa's giving us a, a, a metaphor for life that it is to be a, a pursuit. It's a chase. It's a quest to gain wisdom. And yeah, we shouldn't see it as kind of a hopeless, unrewarding pursuit that we continue through our life. It's not to be like Captain Ahab chasing after the white whale, slowly kind of descending into madness because... We can't ever quite catch him. No, this, this pursuit is what gives us life itself. Proverbs, Proverbs provides us with an illustration of what this pursuit is to look like. In, in verse 6, 8 and 9, wisdom is again personified. You remember in chapter 1, wisdom was personified? Uh, Lady Wisdom in, the, in that chapter, she's kind of loud, she's bold, she's actually kind of angry. But here, the personification is different. She's a different lady here. <clears throat> So verse 6, do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. Verse 8, esteem her or cherish her. She will exalt you and embrace her. She will honour you. She'll give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. Wisdom in this way is, is presented, is personified as a loving wife who affectionately and generously reciprocates the relationship. Our pursuit of, of wisdom is it's like a marriage in that way. It's this romantic pursuit where you're falling deeper and deeper in love with wisdom, deeper and deeper in love with God's ways for your life. The more you pursue God's pattern for life, the more you benefit from it. And so life's, life's not this reckless pursuit that ruins you, but a, it's a passionate pursuit of God's will and leading. In a sense, that is what true life is, pursuing that. And because this pursuit of wisdom... It's actually, well, it's a pursuit of God's ways. It's actually a pursuit of God himself. It's, it's, it's ultimately him. It's that fundamental relationship of our maker that we were created to have. And so bound up in this pursuing is this sense of, of purpose and meaning that we're given. Our, our existence is not complete without this relationship with God. And just like the words of chapter 1, just like that clip hint, hinted toward, Fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of living. Without God, we have no, no higher purpose, no goal, no, no point. What I really love about this first talk in, in Proverbs is the unashamed uh, self-interest. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Proverbs is telling us to be selfish gits, 
What it's saying is that there is a sense in which we're called to enjoy the benefits that are on offer to us by living God's way, that we should want life. You know, it's healthy to want protection and honour and grace and recognition. God wants us to have life. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. And now I think we sometimes do, or oftentimes we do have a problem with thinking life is all about me and my comfort. But I also think sometimes we have a problem with sometimes thinking that the Christian life is just kind of eking out our existence until we finally fall over the threshold into eternity. They're not meant to be miserable in that way. And so these verses, they give us the reassurance, this yearning, that, for, for, that fulfilment and purpose and life, they are valid. They're valid desires that we have. God is pro-life in that sense for us. He who breathed life into humankind wants to see us continue and, and thrive and continue to live. And they also give us a compass that, that we don't get to define what the good life is, that we do have to see it from God's point of view. It is his definition of the, the good life. Similarly, we can't seek to gain it by whatever means we fancy. It has to be by pursuing his ways, his will, his kingdom. We have to live this passionate pursuit of his greatness because in that, that's where we are most alive. And so the first talk ends there. The coffee cups are washed up and Grandpa goes back to resting in peace. But this idea of what true life is, it's picked up again in the second heart-to-heart talk. The scene might have changed, but the topic is still life. The dad in his second uh, talk is going to expand the idea what it really is to live. And he introduces a second ingredient into the recipe of life. Dad picks up where he left off. He holds out promises to the son that listening to wisdom, pursuing this wisdom, he'll be under certain blessings. Told him verse 1 but that by accepting what the dad says, he'll get long life. We're told his steps won't be hampered, he won't stumble when he runs. It's worthwhile saying that, just to do with this, this promise thing, that there is this cause and effect pattern throughout life that no one can escape. It's, it's woven in, <clears throat> but there are limits to it. It's not strict, predictable, uh, mechanical pattern in that way. These, these promises that are extended to the sun, they're, they're generally true, but as, as the other wisdom books point out, there are always exceptions. Sometimes wise people do die early. Sometimes there are setbacks. Sometimes there are tumult. And we live in a complex world where this cause and effect pattern is just one of the systems at play. Even the fact of verse 12 refers to walking and running show that these promises are highly metaphorical. It's not about tripping over. It's about living. And so we're not to think of this pattern as something that we can rig or something that we can force so that we always win, so we get the blessings. And God sees right through that sort of thing. In fact, he hates any sort of performance that has an ulterior motive just to get the blessings. And so the dad goes on to reveal what the second ingredient is that must be added into life. That is, life requires trust. Verse 10, 11, 13, the son is told that he must trust the father's wisdom. He's to rely on this God-given instruction about what life's about. Verse 10, he's told, accept what I say. Verse 11, I guide you, I lead you. Verse 13, hold on to this instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well because it's your life. And in acknowledging that you need another, 
You need wisdom from God. That's where life is found. True life isn't in blazing your own path. It's not in self-sufficiency. There's a humility required. If the sun, if we are to enjoy life, we're to know our own limits, our own weaknesses. We're to have an eye on whom we are to depend. It's to admit that you're not God and that you don't sit alone in the driver's seat of your life. It's Because that's not a position that you were made to occupy. And this idea of trusting, it's kind of abstract. And so the Father gives us a really helpful picture for this as well. He's going to go on to tell us that going our own way, he's going to tell us what it looks like to go your own way, to ignore this ingredient of trust. In verse 14 and 15, uh, he, he hands us a couple of mug shots of some people. He simply calls them the wicked. And so we're meant to see these, these are nasty people. We're meant to see these, this is Genghis Khan, Charles Manson, Ivan Milat, all gathered together. These are the people who have rejected God, who don't rely on him and they forge their own way in God's world. They're, they're the wrong fit for God's world in that way. And this is what it says, verse 16, they cannot rest until they do evil. They're robbed of sleep till they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness, they drink the wine of violence. Throughout the Bible, sleep is seen as a gift from God. It's a sign of God's peace and rest upon a person. Here we see those who have separated themselves from God, they don't get that sort of rest. They're, they're restless. Now, if you struggle with insomnia, I'm not saying that you're Genghis Khan, but you probably know of all people what a gift sleep is. Not all restlessness is a sign of self-reliance, but all self-reliance does have this restlessness. It's marked by it because it's incompatible with the way we're made. And similarly, it speaks of wickedness and violence being their food and drink. There's, in their sin, there's an everydayness. They've been hardened and calloused by the regularity of self-reliance. It's who they are. By, by what they eat and drink, we see what they're consumed by. In verse 19, it says, But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. And so not only do, is life for them a great misstep, but they don't even realise what's wrong with it. There's a bondage in this self-reliance. It's, it's, it's sad. We're meant to see this as a tragedy. And now we see the dad he uses, as this is a real extreme example, but he's not to say, just don't go down that end of the spectrum. He's actually saying this is a path. Self-reliance is a path that we can walk on. And all sorts of people are on this path. We need to remember that by the time of Jesus, who were the most self-reliant people? They were the religious people. They were the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the blokes who went to church and knew their Bibles. Self-reliance takes many forms. And for us today, no doubt, self-reliance looks a lot like comfortable middle-class Australia. And so there's a double danger for us sitting here today that we don't look at our life and either say, I've done this, I've made myself, I've made my money, I haven't needed God. Or we're to look at our own righteousness like that and say, you know, of course God would choose me. I'm, I'm sensible, I'm decent, I'm a shoe-in for the elect. You know, Jesus kind of needs me just as much as I may or may not need him. And so they're both forms of self-reliance. And the dad would say, be very careful of anything that remotely smells like this sort of self-reliance. True life is by owning our, our limits... It's by owning up to the times when we have shoved God out of the picture. True life depends on admitting to needing people, but more so needing God. True life is admitting to needing his way. 
mentioned earlier a quote from Jesus saying that he came to give life and life to the full. And it's a great verse. It captures that picture of the first talk. But Jesus goes on in that passage to talk about something else which really sums up this idea of dependence as well. So John 10, verse 10 and 11 together. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Verse 11, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And so firstly, sheep are, are needy, they're dependent creatures. And Jesus says that we are all like sheep. We need a shepherd, but more than that, we need the sacrifice of the shepherd. This is why he's the good shepherd, because he lays down his life as a substitute for the sheep. He, he dies instead of us. This captures beautifully this idea of living a, a dependent, trust-shaped life. A life that's, that's desperately needy, but is open to acknowledging that need. It's humble enough to accept the good shepherd's sacrifice. Proverbs would say, if you want the good life, it's found nowhere than under the care of this good shepherd. Trusting that Jesus Christ is your sacrifice for sin, your resurrection, your life. Every day that you are self-reliant, you'll be restless, calloused and in bondage until you rely on him. The dad says that if you want life, finishes his talk by saying, you need to depend on this shepherd. And so the third time the dad calls us over for the heart to heart, he picks up right where he left off and he expands this idea of life under the good shepherd. Again, he says, listen to my words. Again, he extends the promise of life. Verse 22, this is what it says. These words are life to those who find them, health to a whole man's body. Now, it's that promise of life via trusting in the words, those two things. But he's also going to talk about what it means to be a person under, under this shepherd. He's going to talk about what it's like to be shepherded in life. Verse 23, we can see a really simple illustration, but it speaks profoundly about who we are as, as sheep. Verse 23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of understanding. The metaphor is of a, a bore well. Uh, my brother-in-law, he, he drills bores for a living. Uh, and so he, he has got a, a rig that he drills down in, puts a pump down there and pumps water out for people. Clint is very, he's always very excited to tell me about his most recent bore and how that's been going. And he'll also, he'll always talk about two factors to do with bores. Uh, he'll always talk about output, how much water can come out of it because some streams uh, then, then they don't provide as much water, they pump dry quick, but some, some you can just pump all day and it's fine. So he'll, he's very excited when he comes across. A really good outputting bore. But the second thing is he'll talk about quality, and this is the more important part. When you pump that water up, you, you taste the water. Sometimes it's salty, sometimes it's hard water. It's too much mineral. It'll kill the garden that you pump that on. You, it'll make you sick to drink it. And yet sometimes this water that comes up is good water. It's sweet. It gives life. And so verse 23 talks about life uh, as a bore well as such. It's profound because it talks about us as being fundamentally outflowing beings. It talks about our heart, our core personality, our character, being that bore well and that whatever is down in the depths of who we are flows outwards and feeds our visible actions and words and emotions. And that whatever it is that rules our hearts, whatever we love, whatever feeds us, that's what manifests in our life. And it's a little wonder then that Jesus starts his shepherding starts there at the heart 
that he would seek to apply the good news that he redeems broken, wayward sheep like you and me, applies that to our hearts, that we would flow out of our lives as, as humble, grateful, gracious servant members of his flock. Our heart is also a complex thing, has bound up a sense of choice and volition in there as to what we might be fed by and what we would love and what, we would, uh, what we'd want to pursue at this heart level. And so that's why the charge is of verse 23, guard our hearts. We're to be aware of what would sneak into our life and steal away our affections. We're, we're to be aware that there is a treacherous streak in our heart that would turn away from, from Jesus, the good shepherd. And so verses 24 to 27, it gives us ways to guard our hearts. These verses, they talk about various parts of the body we'll see. And it's a way of saying that guarding your heart is actually going to take all of you. It's going to take this concerted effort to, to do this. We mustn't see them just as behavioural changes, but they're, they're ways of placing sentries over our life to, to, to guard what we are ruled by, what we're fed by and what we love. And it's not an exhaustive list, we'll see. It's a creative way of saying stick to the path, follow the shepherd, pursue Jesus the good shepherd with all you have and don't go off course. So verse 24 to 27, this is what it says. This is the instruction to guard our heart. Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet. Take only ways of the firm. Do not... Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. And so it's interesting that the warning starts with the mouth. In the original language, it, it kind of points out both our speech but also to the speech that we might hear as well. And it speaks of steering clear of literally uh, crooked speech. And so uh, crooked speech, it's lying, it's deception, it's insensitivity, it's, it's brutal or gossip-filled talk. We're, we're to push those things far from us. You know, we tend to think that talk is cheap and we believe the lie that, you know, words don't mean anything. They're kind of insubstantial. But wisdom is shown that by watching our words and watching what we hear, it, it's showing a respect for this gift that God has given us as the speaking God. We alone have speech on earth as God's creation. And so we're, we're to reflect this speaking God by avoiding crooked speech. Similarly, verse 25 warns of our eyes. We're, we're to be careful where we sit, where we set our gaze. Uh, Proverbs 27 has this really good insight. This is what it says, uh, 2720. It says, death and destruction are never satisfied and neither are human eyes. It, it, it makes a really good point that we just love looking at things, isn't it? And so without referring to the sinister side of internet use, how true is that proverb for a generation that could literally spend all of their days, you know, with their eyes filling their heart with the inconsequential, with the irreverent and with the immoral. We are to watch what our eyes see. And verse 26 and 27 both speak of directing our feet, walking on the path. The dad finishes this point by saying, walk on the right path. And so guarding our heart looks like plodding along the course marked out by, for us by Jesus. Uh, it's interesting, in the New Testament, one of the Apostle Paul's favourite metaphors for the Christian life is walking. Walking in truth, walking in love, walking as children of life, walking in a manner worthy of our calling. He also says, walk in Christ. 
And so it's not just that we're following Jesus, we're actually becoming Jesus. It's it's taking on his character and his attributes. It's getting his life. And so if Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, then we too are to live that sacrificial life for the sake of others. A life of walking after Jesus. Life involves death in that sense. And so that, that brings us to the final piece of the answer to what is the good life? The true life, uh, the true life must carry within it a sense of death in that way. Now we know that God wants us to have life, that living truly is part of his plan, but I also see that God's vision for life on this earth now involves death. We see that in the mission of Jesus. We see that it's true that living requires trust, and dependence on God, and in a sense, there's this internal death of our own self-reliance. Life is walking with God. Life is dying to ourself. And we see that as the shepherd walked, so we do, in a costly sacrifice of our life, in laying down our life for our family, friends, strangers, enemies. Life is to be marked by death for us. Thankfully, that death is not the end of the story. I don't have to finish the talk on a note of death. Jesus rose victorious from the grave. He ascended to heaven and now he rules and that by his spirit, we too will wake up from death. For those who trust in the good shepherd, we can have rock solid hope that our inevitable deaths, you know, whether the metaphorical ones, the internal small ones of our life or our actual death, will one day be reversed. And it's that hope in Christ that makes this life the full life, the good life, the successful life. There'll be, always be many philosophies, as we heard at the beginning, about the good life. No doubt you have heard and may keep some of them, but here is, here is a trustworthy saying about life. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. Let me pray for us to finish. Our Lord Jesus, we, we know that you are the author of life, that life belongs to you, and we thank you that you give us life. Lord, that we, we ask that you would work your life into the details of our existence, into the details of our lives, that we might be like you. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would help us to guard our hearts, And Lord, I pray that we would glorify you by sacrificing our life, just as you did. We ask this in your name. Amen.